Stop trying to create people. Stop, stop trying to recreate people. If the, if you don't want to talk to Chuck Rinker, why would you want to talk to a fake Chuck Rinker? You know, stop trying to replicate humans. Forget about photorealism, ultra hyperrealism. If we want humans, we'll stay with humans. We need to do something better. I'm James. And I'm Brian. And this is Spanning Zero. Welcome to another episode of Spamming Zero, everybody. Thank you for all of our listeners out there who subscribe and rate the podcast. Hopefully, we're doing a good job for you. Excited about today's episode. We are joined by Chuck Rinker. Now, i got to give a little bit of a background on Chuck because he has an amazing story. He's the CEO of Personas. He's an ex-cattle farmer. We might dive into this farming thing because I, I am a big fan of that. I was a farmer myself a little bit. Wonderful. He's a former Madden programmer. We're going to dive into that a bit, too. He was an NCAA director, big sports fan. So, yeah, we're going to dive into those things. He was a cancer survivor and he's in five years of remission. So congratulations on that, Chuck. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, James. Appreciate it. So today, for the most part, even though we have a lot of things we want to dive into, we're going to be talking about the mix of humans and digital. So for our listeners out there, that's the main point of the topic here. But Chuck, everybody can't come on the show without getting this strange like question in the very beginning that I like to ask, and it's different for everyone. But for you, I'd love for you to tell us, if you were stranded on an island, okay, and you, you only had one store that you could shop at for all of your needs, or your favorite store, what's it going to be? Home Depot, no questions asked. <laughs> That's a good one. You know, you could pretty much do anything you want. If Home Depot was on that stranded island, you could build yourself a house. Like, great pick. I like it. Chuck, let's start by, let me just ask you, like, why are you so passionate about the the mix of humans and digital? And what do you think is wrong today? That's a great question to start off. In it. And I'll try to keep it as concise as I can, because uh, tying right into the old cattle farmer, I grew up in a pretty, uh, uh, you know, rural area, you know, cattle farming my nearest neighbor was, you know, a quarter mile away, half mile away. You know, our school had, you know, less than 100 students per school and such. So there wasn't a whole lot of engagement going on that was anything relatable here. And then I, I was lucky enough that my parents bought me one of the original football games, the LED football games. And what was inspiring to me that still sticks with me today is that we have an imagination that was able to turn that little three dots of LEDs, just little red dots, and to you, that was a quarterback, a running back, and a blocker. And the fact that the human imagination can engage at that level always intrigued me, which got me into computers and programming at an early age and such. And I realized as I progressed through all the realms, you know, this will show my age a little, when I first got into computers, we were literally using ticker tapes. And if you have any <laughs> audience members that remember ticker tapes... <laughs> I'd, I'd be surprised, but there are a few of us where we literally would punch holes in the tape, and that's how we talk to computers. That's, you know, keyboards didn't even exist. And we got into punch cards. We had to punch multiple holes in pieces of the paper. Then you got into magnetic tapes. Then you got into cassette tapes. You got into, heaven forbid, we had the big discs that looked like washing machines when I first started. They were 20 megabytes a piece. And like, ooh. And it kept advancing and advancing, and eventually we got to CRTs and stuff like that. And as we got more and more technology that could engage with humans, 
we were able then to relate what we wanted these machines, these amazing machines to do. So the more we can communicate to those machines, the more productivity, the more benefit they can be to us. So now we're living in this amazing age that people don't even realize, you know, this entire thing happened just since I was a kid in the 70s and 80s. And in less than 50 years, we've gone from red blips on the screen to hardly being able to distinguish whether you're talking to a human or a digital personality. That scares a lot of people, but to me, it excites me because it really opens up the possibility that you and me have evolved, a human race has evolved for millions of years in the way we communicate, the way we can express to each other, eye gestures, hand movements, a little bit of eyebrow movement, smiles. That relays so much information to us, and that's how we communicate naturally. Computers are now starting to get sophisticated enough that now we don't have to learn how to use technology and computers. We can teach technology and computers how to communicate with us at our level. And that's really what we're trying to pull off here is human communication, break down the barriers of human computer interfacing. Before we dive into, this is, I, I want to ask you a question because I think right now it's, it's especially relevant. We've seen certain situations in the history of time, the internet, right? That was one, the industrial revolution, another, like just different situations in the history of time where those who were early adopters of those situations came out on top and, and typically were leading those areas. And I think we're seeing the same thing to your point. And when we look at the history of just time and what's happening right now, we're seeing the same thing happen with AI. And I know that you, you say you're excited about it, but and there are a lot of people that are concerned about it, just like there were when the internet came out. Like I, I, I read a, a LinkedIn post the other day, and this guy had a picture of a really old school newspaper, and it was like, oh yeah, like this is the the internet's not going to work. This is a bunch of garbage or something like that. And it was like written by, I think it was like the New York Post or something like that, like uh -huh. a very prominent like news outlet, and just goes to show you that like things change quick. And I'd love to get your perspective on, I know you're excited about it, but what do you feel like people in general, when they think about AI and when they think about this revolution with AI, what do you think that they need to be considering right now as they're either early adopters or trying to figure out, is this something that I want to use in our general operations? Awesome question. Another, another one of those topics I could sit on my soapbox for hours, but I'll try to be as, as brief. I'll start with the anecdotal that I always tell people about, that people are always scared of the new, the different, the, oh, this is going to take over. And if you go all the way back into history, when the stethoscope was first created, simple Ooh. stethoscope, doctors can't live with it at all. When the stethoscope first came out, a lot of the physicians raised their arms. Oh, this is the end of proper medicine. You can't replace the human air. It's not sensitive enough. You can't do this. You can't do that. And quite honestly, the medical community was up in arms over a stethoscope. Because it was new, it was different. They didn't learn that at the end of the day, it enhanced our ability to perceive certain things. And now we can't live without it. So if you fast forward that to what's going on with the AI, there are things everybody's got to be concerned with. We got to look at ethical usage. It's now pretty easy for us to create deep fakes and create to literally steal someone's personality or their voice, their aesthetics, their look and feel. So there's a lot of ethical concern that people have to be concerned with. What is the proper and ethical use of it? However, from my perspective, I get excited about it 
because to me, it does a couple of things. It's don't focus on human replication. I'll say that my competitors out there listening, that's a little bit of our secret sauce is being from the gaming background and have almost a predominantly gaming company. We really think about human engagement, not human replication. So it's human communication, not human replication. But what that does for us is like I said, creates this ability for us to work with this technology and to let the technology be nothing more than a productivity tool. Nobody's complaining about laptops right now. Okay, our laptops can talk. Our laptops have eyeballs. Our laptops can now better understand what your intention is out of that machine. All this about conversational AI, natural language parsing, language understanding, language translation, all these things really are just an easier way that when I express what I'm trying to get done, I'm expressing that how I'm talking to you right now in a very natural conversational way. So when you look at AI and this advances in AI as a productivity tool, not a way to replace humans, you take a little different perspective. It's not, oh my God, you're taking people's jobs. Now it's, wait a second, what if I had another 10 or 15 hours a week to do what I do best, which is I create, I imagine things, I innovate. That human innovation, creativity, and perspective. Even when you talk about generative AI, when you talk about, oh my God, you know, ChatGPT can now write my resume for me, or it can write an artificial interview and people, now what do we do? Because I don't know if this is a real person. So what? It doesn't matter. Because if I create that initial starting point and I give you more options, even in the music business, there's a lot about, you know, the synthesized voice from Dre and stuff like that. Oh my God, what's going on? Well, the reality is all we're doing is getting farther down that pipeline and taking less of the repetitive mundane task off your human plates and let this little gray matter appear, do what it does best, which is innovate and create. So if I can get 80% there with chat GPT, and then I can focus my time on making that last 20% uniquely chuck, uniquely needy, that's just a productivity tool, whether it's for creativity, business productivity, or any kind of engagement. That's really what the power of what we're doing now is. I love that. And I couldn't agree more with you. We try to not talk about flip when we're on the show because, you know, like we don't like it to be salesy, but that's like one of the main promises that we try to make with people is like we're an AI company and we're in existence because of the fact we're trying to make humans even better. And like there's no reason why certain tasks cannot be handled by automation and AI. And there's no reason why you should be having your staff continually doing the things that are repeatable that can be automated. Cause guess what that's doing? That's actually costing you more. Cause here's what it's doing. It's causing your agents to leave. It's causing their burnout to happen. And then on top of that, after they leave, then you're having to train new staff, which is more cost and more like just, it's crazy how, there's not more brands and organizations that see it that way. It's just fascinating to me. I got to tell you, because you're a hundred percent, hundred ten percent. You know, you, you we could we could be flipping roles right now. You could be on this side of the camera because that's resonated exactly with what we promote as well. And you mentioned that people don't get it, and we have found our biggest challenge when we're pushing this type of engagement is that fear factor of, of yep. human engagement. And what's obvious to you and me, it's like, wait a second, I'm out here. What are you talking about? Do this, this, and this. And now you know what? We're all going to be elevated. It's, it's, it's been a hard message. It really has been a tough message to get out there. 
I gotta ask you, and this is a little bit off topic, but I, I, I'm very curious about it. Now, you are a former Madden programmer, so as a programmer and coder, do you play a lot of video games? Yes, I was a programmer. <laughs> I actually did program on Madden. I was the director of Madden. I was the director of NCAA, but my, my early career was a programmer. And yes, I, I am a sports fan, not as much as I used to be. I'm a, more limited. In my early days, I was a big, big, big time college football fan. Now I find myself watching Snake Bite during the PDC throw his dart taping chips at the Alley Pally because I can drink beer and make fun of people when I'm playing darts. So in any sense, that that's my background a little bit there. So you're not, so you, you don't you don't get into video games very much anymore then, yeah? I do a lot of my gaming because my time constraints are more of a social game. But I think I've been you know. A seven-year veteran of the Clash Royale playing. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm probably up on that one front. So the things that I can play at five or ten minutes stints. You know, back in the early days when I was gaming, Persistent Worlds didn't really even exist. Uh, one of the first MMOGs out there that had a Persistent World never had commercial success, but it was a, um, a small game we were working on here in the Raleigh area with a small startup. And we were creating one of those first early persistent worlds where we had to put up our own server farms and everything and manage everything ourselves so so yeah I'm a, I'm a gamer from way back but more nowadays it's more social gaming that's fascinating to me my son has has a little bit of interest to potentially do some like video game programming what would be your advice for my son that's a great question and ironically i do speak at um several colleges that have you know cs and uh, computer engineering and I talk to some of these young kids that are trying to make their mark. And um, the only thing I can put to people is to me, the people that have succeeded, I kind of jokingly call the gaming industry Hollywood for geeks <laughs> because it really is. You really got to eat, drink, sleep that gaming. If you have that same passion for gaming that people do for, oh my God, I want to make it as an actor, an actress or a singer or whatever the case is, or a director, whatever the piece is, the gaming industry is just like any other industry. You've got everything from people running IT computers to creative writers up through 3D animators and audio production and audio development to technical development and programming. If he has that programming prowess, the one thing I would highlight to all good computer engineers is you got two sides of your brain. Those that excel in the gaming industry are those that can bridge the data gap between your artist, between your creative development team and the programming team, and make sure that the visions that the artists are putting forth is what's going to be relayed on the screen. That's what's going to resonate with the players. So if he's a programmer, then he or she's a programmer. I'm sorry. You said son. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So if he's a programmer, tell him to take some art courses, learn a little bit of Photoshop, get into the creative side and understand what the creative thinking is, because that dual side brain is the hardest piece of the puzzle to fill out in the gaming industry is, is those that can think on both sides of the brain. I love that. That's some great advice. And I couldn't agree more. I, plus, I think the world, uh, the generation growing up in today's world, I think needs to be a little bit more creative outside of like doing their TikToks. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So let's dive into more of this topic. You had briefly mentioned gesture communication, like when we were talking about our facial expressions and things like that. I want to dive into this a little bit more because I do think that this is something that also plays a role into our ability to understand people at a different level. 
And I, I want you to dive into like how gesture communication and, and ASL can play a role into the customer experience. And one of the things that your team had mentioned was why just having voice is not enough. And I agree with you on that. So dive into that a little bit. Great. That's an, um, another tough one, but it's, it's easy to talk about. It's hard to, to take people to think that way. I can start off with a term that is kind of common in the uh, marketing world called brand intimacy. You take brands like Disney, you take brands like Apple. Disney has probably the most loyal customer base on the face of the planet, but they don't do it. They, they don't do it through having the best price or even the best product. They do it by creating an emotional bond and emotional connection. There's some pretty interesting clinical trials and clinical studies. We do a lot in the pharmaceutical world and the healthcare. So I, I tend to read a lot of stops, trials and studies, especially since that whole cancer about what my wife and I had to go through. But the point here is that it's not just a feel good. Oop, just because Chuck says it's true. I, I highly recommend any marketing team to dig into some of these studies and you'll find that an emotional connection and that emotional connection comes when you and I smile at each other, when we raise our eyebrows, when we wave a little bit, it eases stress. It creates a less anxious piece, creates trustworthy avatars. It creates that sense of familiarity that makes them approachable. Our characters can be created in any cultural diversity, inclusivity, sign language, whatever language. We have two members of the deaf community on staff that we work directly with the ASL community. So what you do is you really create a trusted advocate for that brand. And that's, that's I think, the underlying piece that's not as easily quantifiable if it was I think it would just be a mad flood and it wouldn't even be a, oh, should we think about this? It would be, oh, wait, this is just part, you know, we got to do social media. We got to do LinkedIn and we got to do avatars. You know, it would be that, it would be that deterministic if we got some more data points. I think in five years, it probably will be as we gather more data and analytics and people start really looking at like like Gardner's doing some great research in the um, metaverse and how avatars play into that brand intimacy as well. And, and I think it's going to be commonplace and it's going to be the early adopters that are going to set the pace for that. It's interesting because there's so many people that I know in today's world that have kids like myself, like we have a 16 year old, a 14 year old, a 10 year old and a seven year old, we have four of them. And so many of them are so afraid of human interaction. They're like afraid of it. Now, I don't know if that's just my kids. Maybe it is. Maybe that's something we've no, done wrong. Not, I don't know. not alone there, my friend. Yeah, I don't think it is, though. And I think there's a lot of kids growing up in today's world that hide behind an avatar. And sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes it's a bad thing. So from your perspective, how do we bridge that balance in making sure that those things are, are done in a good way? rather than a bad way where people are hiding behind an avatar to bully and do those kinds of things. Cause I know that's something that a lot of our listeners are probably thinking about. Yeah. That's a, a really tough topic. Everybody has perspectives on that front and like anything, any, any technology, any, any new push, of course, COVID to your, just to address that, you know, my kids, I have two daughters. I mean, the anxiety levels pre COVID versus post COVID are just out the, off the, the charts college kids. I have a lot of nieces and nephews that are just getting out of college and all. And it is, it's, it's a very clearly differentiated population from just five years ago to now today. As far as how that relates to hiding behind avatars, I actually, 
in general, the point is, is in general, I actually like it. I'm not saying there aren't things you have to look out for. There's obviously the, the, the cyberbullying that we won't dive into, but there's life cyberbullying, real life cyberbullying uh, and cyberbullying that, that contributed to a, a death of a 13-year-old girl that was real close to our family. So it's, it's a very real and painful topic to talk about. So it is something that needs to be addressed. It needs to be controlled at the ethical level. However, on the flip side, to try to be the optimistic person I try to be, is when you create an avatar of yourself, whether it's just Facebook postings or fun, or whether you're, you want to dye your hair blue and you want to uh, do piercings or, or, or tattoos or what have you, it becomes a way for someone to express themselves and create an identity. And when someone creates an identity, whether it's a physical world identity with tattoos and hair color, or whether it's an online presence, and they say, you know what, um, I've got an avatar, my avatar is going to have, you know, goat horns and what, whatever the case is, they're creating a personality that's reflecting the way they're feeling, which to me builds confidence. It builds confidence in who they are. It creates their own identity. And it's actually typically from what my experiences have been, it allows those people to open up more. So it's almost like an amplifier. <laughs> the bad people are going to get worse, <laughs> but the good people are going to develop the, the social skills and the confidence in who they are. And they're going to come out a little more and they're going to be more adopting and more less anxious about engaging in public. Yeah. I think you bring up some really, really good points. And I feel like we could talk for hours just on the brand stuff. And like your examples with, with Disney and, and things like that. I, do you guys do a lot with like sensory marketing? Cause like, that's a big, I'm a big believer in that stuff. Like if you want to create emotion, like the one of, one of the best ways to do that is to tap into the five senses. There's a reason why, and I've said this many times before, so it's probably going to be annoying for people to hear this again, but there's a reason why some of your most creative thoughts happen when you're outside walking around and when you're because it, it invokes all of your senses at the same time. And that can create the strongest type of emotional connection and creativity. When we go outside, we smell the air. We feel the air on our on our faces. If a car drives by, we smell the gasoline at times. Like, like we 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 see everything around us. Like, and then sometimes you can even taste the air. You know what I mean? Like it's it's all five senses. And like the same kind of thing happens, <laughs> believe it or not, when you're in the shower. Like and mm -hmm. it's when you're like in your un in your most unconventional situation to be creative that you're the most creative and it's because your senses are, are activated. So I, I love that. And I feel like we could talk about again, that for hours because I'm a huge believer in it. I think that it is incredible. One of the brands that I think is invested more than I have ever, like it's crazy how much money they've invested in doing this, but actually MasterCard, their, their CMO has invested an, a crazy amount of money into like sonic branding, having a sound right. that that record that they, they can write. They have a whole album. Like Mastercard has an album you can buy on iTunes. It's it's wild. I could look that one up. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's awesome. It's, it's it's wild. So they're probably one of the brands that I feel like has invested the most money into something like that. But I I want to kind of come into this digital personality thing and and what's your advice for brands that want to try to create digital personalities. I think one of the things that happens, especially with our listeners is they're trying to create 
more interactive experiences. And to your point, that's engagement, right? So I know brands that are trying to use virtual reality to do or AR, which is basically like they're trying to do online shopping experiences where it's interactive. You can do sizes and things like that. So what's your advice to them if they want to start going down the path of creating better engagement with these areas? That's a great question. And it actually plays into your your comments about the sensory marketing. In a broader sense, I'll call it more like experiential marketing. With brands, the commonality there of, of what's going to create that brand intimacy, that brand loyalty, is really about the personality of the brands. We actually kind of stay claim to fame, whether it's true or not. We kind of claim we have the first tattoo hologram in history where we worked with a Vans brand and we created a, a Vans avatar and we put tattoos on the Vans avatar because that was their personality and that's what they want people to think of. And you were talking about experiential AR, VR. There's an interesting, I call it an interesting article because I wrote it. Um, it's on LinkedIn if you go to my profile about how people don't realize to me, Walt Disney was the quintessential original virtual reality creator. Disney World, Disneyland. He didn't, he wasn't able to put on goggles and headphones to isolate your sensors. So he created a whole world around him and he did weird things like at Disney World, he built the whole Disney World on the second floor of a big story building. So the Magic Kingdom has tunnels and corridors underneath so that characters can go from different parts of the world and trash can be taken out. And you're never doing what in game business we call this suspension of disbelief, which is you never take someone out of that experience. So when we talk about experience marketing, when you think about a brand, you say, what advice would you give brands? Is I would say, stop delivering product features and functions. Stop telling people why you're better than other people and start creating an experience that gets these people hooked on your brands that get these people there. And that experience would be from a digital avatar. How does it relate to a digital avatar? If you take any brand, let's just pick, um, well, let's take Home Depot because I love Home Depot so much. And, and you've heard that's the one store I want. Um, on a deserted island is if you were to say, Hey, who is Home Depot? Home Depot is no longer a store. Home Depot is no longer a franchise. Home Depot is no longer a retail island. Home, Home Depot is a person. Home Depot is a personality. Who would that personality be? What would he, she look like? What would they look like? What, how would they act? What would there be to their demeanor? How would they treat people? Are they tongue in cheek? Are they stoic? Are they humorous? Are they serious? You know, what, what is that brand? image that you're trying to get because when you create a personality around your brand and you think about your brand as a person and you learn how to encompass that into an avatar now you've directly and immediately created a personal relationship with the consumer demographic that's going to be attracted to your brand that's really the advice to think about is if your brand was a person what would he she they look like act like sound like talk like what knowledge do they have in the brain and then focus that on creating that connection with your customer. I couldn't agree more. So as a CMO of Flip, right, we went through a rebranding exercise and we spent a lot of time with the personality stuff. Like how do we want our brand to be seen and heard? And we, we all agreed that we wanted it to stand out and to stand out amongst a very busy world. You got to be edgy. Right? So we needed our color scheme to match that. We needed our our name to be edgy. We needed to use swears often, right? Because that's what people aren't used to seeing. Yeah. And 
it, it does evoke emotion more so than than I think we realize. And it's funny because we we had a little while ago we had one of our investors and been like, hey, maybe you should tone down the swears a bit. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we were like, okay, yeah, we could do that. But you know, there, there's a reason why we actually chose the name Flip because it can be used in in an emotional way. You've actually said our name on this podcast already. Like when you oh, when yeah. you said it's yeah, we got to flip it around, right? And uh, so many people, yeah. so many people don't even realize that they 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 use our name. And we do it on, we did it that on purpose because we also want people to realize that you know, doing this kind of stuff can be fun and it can be really interesting and and engaging. And I remember coming up with this brand will and it was essentially all the components of our brand like we have a very specific sound that we use with our with our podcast but also with our flip brand we have an earcon all those things and i remember like presenting this will to the whole organization when we came up with it and one of them was like the emotional aspect and the the description words that we wanted to be known for and it was fun edgy we try to do that with everything we do. So like the videos people see, like they try to be fun and edgy. Our podcast, like it's different, right? We play games, which we're going to get into here in, here in a second. I think it's, it's what makes brands stand out when you can do those things. So I couldn't agree more with you. And it does create a deeper emotional connection. It really does. And you're, you're really speaking to the choir here because I do notice, unless I'm mistaken, over your left shoulder, you got a Tony Robbins book. Yep. I was one of those early, early Tony Robbins, you know, back when he was doing this in the, the mid late nineties. And he used to use a term, if he still uses it called neuroassociative conditioning. Yep. Neuroassociative conditioning basically says, and it relates to exactly what you're saying. We really at the core of who we are only do two things. We avoid pain and we seek pleasure. So when you relate that to everything you ever do, everything we do here, people have given me a little bit of, I won't necessarily say a hard time, but let's say they raise their eyebrows and go, hey, why are you creating cartoony characters for, you know, for kids that are having MRIs and CAT scans? We did, we did a piece with the Disney hospital that right down there in Orlando in celebration early on. And we're like, well, because you need to create, give the kids that are going through so much pain a little bit of pleasure. Let them be relatable. We created this bear we called Buddy and Max. And instead of having cat scans, we worked with a group called Bear Facts Entertainment. And now they're dream, think, imagine they do wonderful stuff in the hospitality and hotel, I mean, a hospital business as well. And basically trying to take a little bit of ease, that little bit of pain, give that anxiety, take some of that anxiety, we take some of that stress away. And that creates that bond. And exactly what you just said there with brands in general. Everybody needs to avoid a little pain and get a little more pleasure out of life. When you have positive thinking and pleasure when it comes to those things, the other thing that happens is like you're able to heal. Like doctors still to this day like can't figure out exactly why it happens, but it does happen and it is a very real thing. I remember my my best friend in high school had a really bad form of cancer. It was sarcoma and he had it in his hip and I would go down to the Huntsman Cancer Center in Utah with him and drink the chalk. You know what I'm talking about. Yep. And drink the chalk with him because it was disgusting. I'll tell you, it's disgusting. I don't know. <laughs> it's tough. Yeah. And we kind of go around and, and just like visit with people. And it's true. The moments where this is another reason why I became such a big Utah jazz fan 
I was already a big Utah Jazz fan, right? But then uh-huh. like this kind of solidified it. It was like his family couldn't pay for his the rest of his treatments. And so John Stockton and Carmelone at that particular time actually came to the Huntsman Cancer Center, visited with oh, him. Amazing. And they're like, We're gonna pay for the rest of your treatments. And this probably prolonged his life even even longer for probably another like four months longer than he probably was going to make it he he ended up not making it but i still remember this vividly because there is something to say even with like our e-commerce listeners out there when you are trying to create an emotional connection with your customers and you're trying to invoke your brand emotions it is imperative that you create pleasure in the process and you can call these whatever you want. You can call them wow moments. You can call them things to remember you by. You can just call it a good customer experience, whatever you want to call it. But it's it's got to be something that is different than the normal. And I think that's the key. So Chuck, what's your advice to people that want to create something that's different than the normal? That's a, that's a great one. And I feel for you on that story. My, my, my wife's a two-top cancer survivor just within five years. I'm a I'm a metastasized colon cancer survivor, as we speak, as you know. And you talk about the theory of positivity. I have sisters who are in the healthcare industry, one of which is a GI specialist. She got us all hooked up with great and wonderful doctors and oncologists. But my other sister also worked at an oncology at an oncology facility. And I, I just want to resonate on that because what she said about the theory of positivity and thinking and people who always have to Mary always would say when a newly diagnosed cancer patient comes in to the ward just by the way they look and how they carry themselves with a pretty high level of accuracy. She can talk to them for five minutes, no diagnosis, no reports. And she has a pretty good ideal if that person is going to react well to treatments and get through it. So it really is, there is a lot of power to the the thinking that goes beyond medicine. I know I'm not trying to get too deep on this, but there really is that there really is a power of the human brain and the human body to react to positivity. And if you look at um, that brand intimacy, I always go back to Disney because Disney to me was, you know, one of those heroes of mine. Cause I think despite what people usually think most of Disney's Academy Awards were for technology advances, not for creativity, you know, he, he was a <laughs> yeah. technologist at heart. He really was, he was an innovator. So in any sense, the point there is to create that brand bond and intimacy. The power of, of connection is not to be trifled with, if you can say it that way a, a yeah. little bit. So I think that is the, the value of companies like Apple. Apple's another great example. You know, Apple and Android people, you know, put on the boxing gloves and get, get into it to see which <laughs> one's better. They really get almost defensive and emotionally defensive against the brands that they really have a bond with. I love that. All right, Chuck. So we're going to play a little game to, to kind um, of like finish things off. Are you ready? I think no, but go ahead. Anyway. <laughs> All right. So we're going to play FMK. Our listeners are <laughs> used to this, but we're going to do it. So, you know, in the broad scope of what we've talked about, we've talked about the gaming industry. We've talked about the science behind branding. We've talked about how this can be applied to creating an emotional connection. So when you think about all of this, mm-hmm. What's something that you feel like is really innovative and sexy right now when it comes to that? Great one. Actually, the ability to take this technology and apply it to diversity, inclusion, communication. We can speak our avatars, 150 languages, sign language, unspoken sign language, gesture communication. 
we can make characters female, male, non-binary, Hispanic, Black, any cultural, any diversity. We do. We have units in the Middle East. We have units in the Netherlands. We have units almost everywhere. So the fact that now you can take your messaging and branding and you can break down cultural barriers, communication barriers, barriers, gender barriers, and create a personality that is irrespective of that, that to me is pretty cool. Yeah, I like that a lot. Okay, so what's something that has been around a long time and it's not going anywhere? It's been around for a long time. It's not going anywhere. It's not as advanced as it needs to be, but I think what needs to stay is that emotional intelligence of the AI. I think misuse of AI, a misappropriation, people get scared of it is when the AI becomes a little creepy. You know, it's, well, that's a little weird. It's a little creepy. And, and a lot of the creepiness comes in when there's not some inherent value behind the emotional intelligence of the responses. The responses, you have to be careful with generative AI. They're amazing. They're wonderful. They're going to expand productivity. But at the end of the day, generated AI responses don't really contain the emotional maturity of a human response. Yeah, I like that a lot. Okay, so what's something you'd kill? What have we got to get rid of? Easy one in. <laughs> People might disagree with me on this. Photorealism, Uncanny Valley. Stop trying to create people. Stop, stop trying to recreate people. If the, if you don't want to talk to Chuck Rinker, why would you want to talk to a fake Chuck Rinker? You know, stop trying to replicate humans. Forget about photorealism, ultra hyperrealism. I don't want to take the Turing test. I want you to be indistinguishable. If we want humans, we'll stay with humans. We need to do something better. We need to be better than that. So my, my opinion is I would just pull the plug on this whole hyper-realizing deep fake stuff. I just think that's it's dangerous too. what can be done. It is very dangerous. And the only good use I think out of it, and I shouldn't say this, is if there, if someone wants to scale up, uh, you know, a celebrity personality, an image, we work with some doctors who are key opinion leaders in their space. And you go, okay, how can this doctor who is a, you know, leading key opinion leader on X, Y, Z condition, how can he or she be at 20 locations that people respect her. So there are personal uses for that, but stop trying to replace humans. Yeah. No, I like that a lot. Trying to We've had people ask us, Hey, can you make the voice sound like Morgan Freeman? And we're like, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> like one, like, did you get Morgan Freeman's permission for this? Of course you didn't. So no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> humans. It's, it's, it almost annoys me as you can probably tell. So, we're almost at time check, but I do have a couple more questions. Okay. Kind of to keep having fun here. When was the last time you played Madden? Oh, Lordy. It's probably been, you're going to kill me. It's probably been 15 years. Okay. So the last time you can remember playing Madden, what was the one thing that you felt like it needed to have and it didn't have? That's a good, good <laughs> The audience, we always focus on the players so much, you know, we put, put refraction on the helmets, we put gang tackling. We were one of the first groups to put gang tackling in our game. We were able to promote from NCAA characters into Madden characters. So we focused so much on the game that we kind of forgot that a football experience is about the stadium and the presence. So it probably needed more, more of that. I'm, I'm going to turn on you for a second and be a little self-promotional look since you like to have fun. Who are the... First two 3D mascots in NCAA football history for eSports. The duck 
Oregon Duck. Okay. No, close. Darn. That's what I was going to. No. I'll give this. The guy from Texas? No. You know Sebastian? No. Miami Hurricanes. Okay. Okay. Number two? Who? Hokey Bird. Oh. (laughs) Do you know why? Why? Hokey. I was a University of Miami undergrad, and then I transferred to Tech as as a, a sophomore. So I was I was lucky enough to be around early enough that the first time we ever digitized mascots was on my watch. So I was able to get Sebastian and Hokey Bird into NCAA as the first two three mascots. Oh, that's awesome. I, I remember one of the coolest parts about the NCAA like franchise and the games that uh-huh. I play was being able to play as the mascots. I loved that. Like, yeah, and they're, they're actually bringing that back. I don't know if you know that, Chuck, but they're bringing I, that back for the first time in like a long time. That's so, pretty cool. I'm now, excited that, that, about that. That was like a world ago to me. I mean, you know, that's then <laughs> I left, I left EA Sports in 2000, 2001. So yeah, it's been, it's been, it's been a long time. I show my age here, but it's been a while. So Chuck, let's end with this question. Tell us about an experience that you've had with a brand that you felt like left you with like the the wow factor and something that you'll always remember. Maybe it's Disney. Maybe it's something different. But well, of course, I can I can always say say Disney. And how do I say this politely? Disney to me is kind of a cut above most because Disney is really all about experience. They're selling experiences. So I think like Rise of the Resistance, if, if some of your viewers haven't had a chance to see that, I've been going to Disney since they opened, you know, since I was a kid. Disney World, Disneyland, and, and Rise of the Resistance, when Disney opened that, it's not an incredibly technically advanced ride. I guess kind of it is. But the scale, to get that sense of scale, you can only get either in a virtual reality environment or if you're like Disney and you build anything to scale. So when you went on to the bridge of the battle cruiser and you had the rows and rows and rows of stormtroopers and everything was lifelike in the scale and what it would really be, that's just, you go, wow, they really just put you in perspective and it made you feel small. And that was a, that was a pretty intriguing moment. You're speaking my language. I'm a, I'm a massive Star Wars nerd, but I haven't had a chance to experience this Star Wars experience yet at Disneyland. I can honestly Disney. say, right hand on the old stack of Bibles, after being at Disney for almost 50 years, that to me is the most, you know, impactful piece they've done. So you, uh, you need to get down there. You need to get down there. I can't wait to go. Chuck, you've been an absolute pleasure today. Thank you for joining us on the Spamming Zero Show. Absolutely. It was a blast. I appreciate it, James. To all of our listeners out there, we have episodes like this every single week. Great guests. Please join us. We'd love to hear from you also. So if there's a topic or a person that you'd like to have us on the show, let me know through LinkedIn. Appreciate it. We'll see you uh, next week. Bye.